hey, this is Alahe. And when I'm not filling in on Post reports, I'm actually a media reporter here at The Post. And so after the draft decision that would overturn Roe versus Wade was leaked Monday night, I started to think a lot about how media has been covering abortion. And I wanted to talk to Margaret. Margaret Sullivan is a media columnist at The Post who provides her perspectives, sometimes her opinions, about that very thing, about how we as journalists cover these thorny issues. Well, I started thinking about a particular OBGYN in the Buffalo area who actually had delivered my first child. And this is 30 years ago, roughly. And this doctor uh, was just filling in for my regular OBGYN. So I didn't know him. His name is Shalom Press. And, you know, the delivery went smoothly, as smoothly as these things can go. <laughs> and I, I say that from a distance of three decades. It seems smooth now. The, the doctor, Shalom Press, ended up being very much in the news. And because I was a journalist in Buffalo and, and an editor eventually, and I was thinking about him, and I was also thinking about his son, My name is Ayal Press. I'm a journalist based in New York. I contribute to The New Yorker, New York Times, and other publications. My father, Shalom Press, is a physician and OBGYN who lives in Buffalo, New York, and who has worked there for several decades and has served as an abortion provider during some very tumultuous times that Buffalo passed through. Buffalo became um, such a hotbed of controversy about this, in part because uh, another OBGYN, Barnett Slepian, was murdered in his home by um, an anti-abortion activist. The effect on Dr. Press was a very great one. He was one of the few OBGYNs who continued to provide abortions. Most of the others decided that it was just too dangerous and too fraught. So I was thinking about that doctor, and I was also thinking it would be interesting to talk to his son. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 5th. Today, how Buffalo became ground zero in the battle over abortion— Plus, the way media shaped how we talk and think about abortion in the U.S. Okay, so we're talking about Buffalo in the 1990s, and I know you said this was a really tense time in the city around the abortion issue. Can you set the scene a little more for me about what it was like at that time? Throughout the 1980s and the 90s, Buffalo was a real real hotbed of controversy about abortion rights. And, you know, why was that? Well, (laughs) Buffalo is a a democratic city for the most part. It's It's sort of a typical urban area. So it tends to vote democratic and it tends to be pretty liberal. And at the same time, it's a very heavily Catholic city. And those things play against each other and create conflict. When Operation Rescue, the militant anti-abortion group, uh, formed, they chose certain cities to target where they felt they would have both um, 
activists on the ground supporting them and local officials supporting them. There were daily protests, um, some of them involving hundreds of people. There were massive numbers of arrests. People uh, showed up both at my father's office and in front of our home. Um, by people, I mean anti-abortion protesters with signs um, that were very graphic in their language, accusing him of um, you know, complicity in uh, what they described as murder. And um, they also uh, obstructed his patients from entering uh, the office to get to appointments and on several occasions invaded the office and on one of those occasions actually chained themselves to the furniture. So it was a real, um, it was a really tense and polarizing time to be a physician uh, like my father. There started being acts of violence, including bombings, arsons, and shootings of abortion providers. And a physician in Buffalo, who my father knew very well, uh, Barnett Slepian, was murdered while standing in his home in 1998 by an anti-abortion zealot named James Charles Kopp. Just minutes after 52-year-old Dr. Barnett Slepian and his wife returned home from synagogue, a sniper shot one bullet from a high-powered rifle into their home, killing the doctor. This was not the only time that um, OBGYNs who also provided abortions were targeted and were killed. It was a, a very, you know, it was a, a really awful period. So, you know, it, it, the, the city and the area and really the nation erupted over this. So you spoke with Dr. Press's son, Ayal Press, and wrote a column. And he had a lot to say, not just about his father, but also about the broader abortion debate, right? You know, he feels very strongly that some of the rhetoric and language that has cropped up around the anti-abortion movement is partly at fault for the way things have come to this pass. Um, in particular, he, he made a point of saying that the references to anti-abortion activists as pro-life, which is fairly common still, is he finds it to be misleading and he makes the case, I think a compelling one, that if they were really so pro-life, they might be more interested in things like gun control, given the prevalence, increasing prevalence of school shootings. They might be interested in doing something about infant and maternal mortality, but there never seems, to, especially for poor women, there never seems to be much discussion about that. Um, and yet, the nomenclature that they would like to see is pro-life. And the problem with the term is that, well, if one side is pro-life, then implicitly the other side is what? Anti-life? Um, and that, I think, explains part of why um, people who support abortion rights have been on the defensive. I think that the terminology matters uh, to that extent. Margaret, why is it that media organizations and journalists would use these terms? Was it that, you know, did they have an overt agenda? I mean, in some cases, there, there's a tendency to want to let people and groups define how you refer to them. I mean, in an example, so I'm, I'm, I'm giving you some sort of larger context here. Um, you know, we, we, we let people tell us how they would like 
their names to be rendered, for example. Um, and so some of it may have arisen out of that kind of, you know, cooperating with with the people we cover in some sort of polite way. At some point, it, there's a defensiveness that crops up. If you don't use that nomenclature, you set yourself up for being harshly criticized by those who want to use those kinds of um, th- that kind of language. Conservatives in general and, and the right and the extreme right have become very, very skilled at attacking mainstream media and people they view as being on the left, but certainly to the left of them. They'll say, well, you're, you're talking, you're spouting Democratic uh, Party talking points. You know, you're on their side. Um, that is not the case. But when you're accused of that, you tend to, you know, as human beings, we tend to react defensively. So we want to be very, very careful. And sometimes we're, we're, we react by doing things that really don't make sense from a strictly truth-telling or journalistic standpoint. I know, Al, one of the other things he, he told you was that one of the greatest successes of the anti-abortion movement was to stigmatize what was a very common medical procedure and to put people who defend abortion rights on the defensive. Well, sometimes we repeat the attacks without, without a lot of thought. You know, we're as as members of the media, as journalists, as part of the mainstream media, we're always very interested in conflict. You know, conflict makes for story to some extent. And so that's a driving force. It makes for interesting stories. You know, we are very conflict oriented. So when there is this kind of reaction and attacking, it's sort of in our DNA to magnify it. And in order to stop magnifying it, we have to be very thoughtful about how things are being framed and whether it's really fair. Um, so I think we've we've come a long way. I say that as, you know, speaking very broadly um, and change some of this nomenclature, but it still tends to be um, well, we may get attacked if we don't use it. We may be criticized. We may be called uh, puppets of the left, and we certainly don't want that. So let's try to take it down the middle. And in some cases, the middle doesn't even exist. Being fair and balanced, I think, is important, but not at the expense of clarity and the truth. I want listeners to dwell on what I think is true of, it's certainly true of my father, it's probably true of, of most physicians who perform abortions, which is that um, abortion is part of a repertoire uh, of reproductive health care uh, that OBGYNs like my father believe they are responsible for. Um, it is not the, the joyous part of the job, just as most women who have had abortions are mothers. Most physicians who believe abortion should be safe and legally available also deliver babies, provide health care on an array of other fronts um, in order to enable women and their patients to live well and have families, uh, be um, safe and secure. And, and, um, and so that came across in, in Margaret's column, and I was really happy to see that. When we talk about both sides, you know, that it's kind of a 
It's a phrase these days that somebody, some news organization is both sidesing something. And while that sounds good, of course you would want to hear both sides. It doesn't make sense when one side is clearly either false or spinning or acting in bad faith. After the break, how conservatives and the media have shaped the abortion narrative. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Okay, this might seem obvious, but given you're a media columnist, could you sort of break down for us why even the choice of words when describing the contours of an issue, why that's important? Like what real life impact does that have in shaping people's opinions or even policy debates? There's a tendency to believe things when you hear them over and over and to accept things when you hear them over and over. I mean, that is, you know, that is how propaganda works. It tends to sort of make its way into the way the public in general views things. And again, you know, you can't, it's very hard to break it down and to measure it. But I think we know that language really does matter. How media narratives shape the debate on subjects like abortion is also something that I've been thinking about um, when I'm not hosting this podcast. I'm your colleague as a media reporter. And uh, our colleague Jeremy Barr and I wrote this story about the recent battle to control the narrative this week as as right-leaning and conservative outlets really tried to put the spotlight on the fact that this draft opinion leaked rather than the content of the leak itself. And, you know, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell even scolded journalists Tuesday for asking what he thought were the wrong questions. You need, it seems to me, excuse the lecture, uh, to concentrate on what the news is today, not a leaked draft but the fact that the draft was leaked. Well, I would suggest there that he didn't really think they were the wrong questions, but he was trying very hard to change the subject. And his language was really strong about it, that this was, you know, that this was a terrible fault of the media for concentrating on what the draft opinion actually said, which is, of course, the right thing to focus on. I mean, that's going to change people's lives. The idea that there was a leak is interesting and notable from a journalistic perspective and from a public interest perspective, but it's not the main thing. And it's it's very wrong, I think, to accept the idea that that's the story here. It is not the story. The actual content of what has happened, which is that the long-established and well-accepted, and in fact, I think we could use the word popular, um, Roe v. Wade precedent is about, apparently, about to be overturned. That is a huge, monumental, watershed moment in American life. 
and one that could play out very, very negatively for the conservative wing of the Republican Party and for Republicans in general. So that's an existential threat. So what do you do about it from a political strategy point of view? You distract. You make it about something else. You distract from the content and you make it about the language or you make it about the framing. And the, you know, Senator McConnell's language and his presentation about it was so vehement um, and I think completely off the point. I'm sure that it was well thought out, that it is a strategy. After the first day or so of coverage, most of the mainstream media was not focused on the leak. Um, You know, you still saw a lot of stories that had the word leak in it, but um, I think that for the most part, people had kind of pivoted to the actual subject at hand, which was encouraging to see. And I don't think it was strange to talk about the unusual aspect that it was leaked. It was highly, you know, highly um, unusual and, and, you know, very strange. And, you know, there's always intrigue around who was the leaker, all of that. But I think the media found its footing on that after about 24 or maybe 48 hours and started talking about the actual reality of what this is going to mean to people's lives and also in a less elevated, less lofty way, what it's going to mean to politics. So there was an intense focus on that as well. That's interesting because I also was, you know, reading a lot of criticism aimed at outlets like the New York Times and and others. And, you know, the Washington Post print edition on Wednesday was focus squarely on the investigation of the the leaked draft. And the leak itself was newsworthy, right? I mean, more so than maybe other leaks, because I, I mean, I, I think the, the concern there isn't just that it's a leak, but that it was so unprecedented. And the way a lot of lawmakers were talking about it is it, it threatens the, the functioning of the court itself. Um, so I guess how should news media be balancing the, the inherent newsworthiness of this break in procedure and the leak and the very consequential um, contents of what was in the draft opinion. I think you have to focus on the content and the the rest of it is to some extent, you know, of course there are stories to be written about it. There's commentary about it. That's all fine, but it should be heavily, heavily weighted toward the actual what's what is happening in the in in America, you know, and what are the roots of it? And, you know, where does it go from here? And most of all, what are the effects going to be on the lives of particularly women who live in states where abortion is about to be essentially illegal if this does happen? And it is a draft, like to remind ourselves of that. But um that's the biggest story here. The The rest of it is kind of interesting and far less consequential. News consumers should be aware. They should always be aware of language and of framing, and they should stop to think about what they're reading or hearing or seeing in the news media and think to themselves, Ah, I wonder if that is fair. I wonder if that language is fair. And when I think about that expression, news consumers, which I think is accurate, we are taking in news, I also like to 
consider news consumers in another way, which is that they are American citizens and that they need to be able to function as citizens by having good information and fair information and actually a common ground of reality with their fellow Americans so that they can function in a democracy. Thanks for your time, Margaret. You're welcome. Margaret Sullivan is a media columnist for The Washington Post. This episode was produced by Julie Deppenbrock and mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Elahe Izadi. Martin Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.